please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Our sermon text for this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. I do think it will help you if you have your physical Bible open this morning. The text is in the bulletin, but I think you'll be helped if you turn there in your Bible. Let me read that passage for us, and I'll pray one more time. Starting in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please join me one more time in prayer. Father God, the unfolding of your word gives light. You say that your word is perfect and makes wise, that it's sure, that it gives life. So, Lord, make us wise, give us life, shine the light of your glory and grace in our midst this morning. Fill me with your spirit that I might handle your word faithfully and accurately and clearly. Fill all of us with your spirit that we might incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Show us your glory in the face of your son, Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by stepping back for just a moment to survey where we have been in the Gospel of Mark so far. Uh, We've seen that Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is very intentional in how he crafts his narrative. Mark is not on a sort of stream of consciousness ramble about stuff Jesus did. The way that Mark tells each individual episode And the way that Mark organizes the episodes together is intended to communicate truth to us. There are countless stories of things that Jesus did that Mark could have told us, but Mark tells us these stories in this way, in this order, for a specific purpose. So before we look at today's passage in depth, I want us to step back and see how Mark has structured the narrative up to this point. And I've created a few slides just to help us with that. So, so far, it seems like Mark has really done three things in his narrative. First, in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, if my clicker will work, I'm going the wrong way. Ah. Mark has introduced the two main human characters of his drama, John the Baptist and Jesus. Remember, Mark introduces John as the prophesied forerunner that Isaiah and Malachi said would come before the Messiah does. 
And then he introduces to us Jesus at the scene of his baptism, when at his baptism, Jesus is revealed by the Holy Spirit to be the Son of God. That's the first thing Mark has done, introduce the characters. The second thing that Mark has done in his narrative is in the next two verses, Mark has given to us, it worked a minute ago, Mark has given to us a summary of Jesus' message. His message is that now that I'm here, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so you should repent, turn away from your rebellion against God the King, and believe in the gospel, believe in the good news that through King Jesus, God pardons those who have rebelled against him. That's the summary of what Jesus teaches as he teaches throughout Mark's gospel. The third thing that Mark does, what we've been seeing him do over the past few weeks, is Mark has been arguing to us, I believe, why we should repent and believe. From Mark chapter 1, verse 16, all the way to chapter 2, verse 14, which is halfway through our passage this morning. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, Mark says, Jesus wants you to turn around and believe in his gospel, that you might be part of his kingdom. You might say, well, why should I do that? That's what Mark has been showing us over the past few weeks. And the way he's been trying to persuade us to repent and believe is by showing us what kind of kingdom Jesus has come to bring. Let me show you how Mark has done that in this third section, Mark 1, 16 to 2, 14. You remember the first, I might just have to ask the slide team to help me here. Oh, here, uh, thank you, thank you. So the first story in this section, Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, Jesus is beside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees four fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, and he calls those fishermen to follow him. They leave everything and they follow him. Well, that should sound pretty familiar. In fact, it should sound like the last story in this section that we just read from Mark chapter 2, when Jesus is once again beside the sea and he calls Levi this time to follow him. And Levi leaves everything and follows him. It seems like Mark has bookended this section with an example of what it looks like to repent and believe, right? Jesus calls you to follow him, and you, at any cost, leave whatever and follow him. Well, why should I do that? Why should I do what Simon and Andrew and James and John and Levi do? Well, glad you asked. The second story, next slide. Uh, can I just ask Steve that you, thank you, thank you. Very good. Forget the clicker. The next story, the second story in this section, remember Jesus is in a synagogue and he is teaching. When he is interrupted in his teaching by a man with a demon and Jesus displays his authority by casting out the demon, right? You remember the punchline of that first story? The people say, what then is this? A new teaching with authority, so why should you leave everything and follow Jesus? Well, because even the demons know that Jesus has authority. He has the right and the might to back up his claim that he's the king. That second story reminds us, next slide, thank you, of the second to last story in this section, where Jesus is once again teaching and he's interrupted, this time by a man coming through the roof who is paralyzed. And you remember what Jesus says to this man. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
The scribes don't like that. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, you remember the climax of that story? He says, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Authority to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. So why should you follow Jesus at any cost? Well, because not only does his teaching have authority, and does he have authority over Satan, he has authority to forgive sins. Why else should you follow Jesus? Next slide. Well, the third story in this section is when Jesus heals a woman with his hand. Remember, Mark tells us that after his stint in the synagogue with the demon, Jesus goes into Simon Peter's house and his mother-in-law is sick. And Mark notes specifically how Jesus heals the woman. He takes her by the hand and raises her up. Why should you follow Jesus? Well, Jesus has come to heal. He has come to restore all that's broken about God's world because of sin. That third episode reminds us of the third to last episode, next slide, in which Jesus also uses his hand, perhaps even the same hand, to heal a leper. A leper comes to him, imploring him, kneeling, saying to him, if you will, you can make me clean. What does Mark specifically say Jesus does? He stretches out his hand in parallel to his healing with of this uh, Peter's mother-in-law, I believe. Uh, And just as that healing led to immense popularity, Jesus' healing of the leper leads also to immense popularity, so much so that he has to be out in the wilderness. So why should you follow Jesus? Because he's the one who can make you clean, right? If your sin, your uncleanness disqualifies you from fellowship with God, However unclean you might be, Jesus is the king who can make you clean. He can restore your brokenness. He has authority to forgive you. He has authority in what he says. He's the boss of Satan. That's why Jesus wants you to follow him, and that's the right thing to do. Levi and Simon and Andrew and James and John were no fools to leave everything and follow him. Next slide, right in the middle of the chiasm. Uh, Remember, Jesus goes off to pray. They find him, and he says, let's go throughout Galilee doing all of the same thing. So it seems like this incident is showing us these episodes are characteristic of what Jesus did all throughout his ministry in Galilee. So friends, before I move any further, can you see that God's word repays careful study? Mark has organized I believe these stories in a chiasm, that's what this kind of structure is called, in order to communicate an additional point, right? That Jesus is showing us what kind of kingdom he he meant to bring, and that's why we should follow him. One more thing we need to see about the structure of Mark's gospel before we move on. Can we go to the next slide? So why should you leave everything and follow Jesus? Because Jesus is the king with authority over Satan, sickness, and sin, The kingdom of Jesus is where sinners find healing and forgiveness and cleansing and freedom from Satan. Thank you. Next slide. So that's where we are so far. You may have noticed that only takes us to halfway through our passage this morning. Our passage this morning is chapter 2, verses 13, all the way to verse 17. So next slide. Uh, That's our passage this morning. Jesus is beside the sea. He calls Levi to follow him. And that leads to a dispute with the Pharisees about dining. So this is our passage this morning in the bracket here. One other thing that Mark is doing in this passage is he's connecting this section with the next section, which is four in a row disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees. So next slide. 
The next three sections are all about disputes with the Pharisees. So that's what Mark is doing in this section of Scripture. Brief comment about the structure of Mark's gospel. Thank you, AV team, for bailing me out there. You can take the slide down. So with the rest of our time this morning, as we dive into the passage that we read at the beginning, Mark 2, 13 to 17, I want us to look at the three characters that we see in this passage, in this first conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. So three-point outline, three characters in this passage. The first character that we need to think about is Levi. A Levi is most likely the same person who in another gospel gets called Matthew. Helpful to know that. So what do we see about Levi in this passage? Well, the first thing that Mark tells us about Levi is his background, specifically that Levi is a tax collector sitting at the tax booth. So verse 13 tells us that Jesus is teaching by the sea, and verse 14, look at it with me, says this. It says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. So from the word Mark uses there, uh, we learn that Levi is most likely working for the Roman client king, Herod Antipas. And from the word that Mark uses, it's likely that Levi is charging taxes on goods in transit. So in Jesus' day, there was a very prominent trade route that ran through Capernaum, which is where Jesus is. And Levi seems to have been part of a system that taxed goods that got transported through Capernaum. But it's important also to know that in Jesus' day, tax collectors like Levi uh, made it a practice to collect more money than they were authorized to do and to pickpocket the surplus. Tax collectors were known for their abuse of authority in order to get more money. So Levi is not the equivalent of an honest IRS agent here. Right? Levi's problem is not that he works for the government. In this congregation, many breathe a sigh of relief, right? Levi's problem is that he uses his authority illegally, immorally, for selfish gain. And so, both because of their reputation for dishonesty and because of their collaboration with an oppressive Roman government, tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people. In Jewish writings, tax collectors were often mentioned in the same breath as murderers and thieves. And many Jewish teachers of Levi's day considered it morally permissible to lie to a tax collector. Jewish teaching was, you should not lie. God does not lie. Oh, but you're talking to a tax collector? Yeah, say whatever you got to. So some Jews taught that the touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Throughout the Bible, we find the catchphrase that's present in this passage, tax collectors and sinners, right? The two go together. It's helpful to note the use of that word sinners there. It seems like it's different than how, say, Paul will use that word in the book of Romans. So in the book of Romans, we are all sinners because we have all sinned and our hearts are all sinful. But in the Gospels, sinners seems more specifically to refer to someone who has embraced a lifestyle that's kind of obviously outside of God's law. So think prostitutes, 
Uh, they're, they're mentioned in the same category elsewhere in the Bible. People who have openly embraced a sexually immoral lifestyle or an illegal lifestyle. That's what I think this text means by sinners. Not to say, as we'll see, that others aren't sinners. So you see, Levi's background is not squeaky clean. His job involved him in an immoral lifestyle of preying on his fellow Jews in collaboration with an oppressive government. But somehow, some way, we're not told, when Levi is called to leave everything and follow Jesus, that's exactly what he does. Second half of verse 14 says this. It says, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me reiterate what Mike said earlier. We're so delighted that you're here. If you're not a Christian this morning, then part of the good news is that whatever your background is, your background does not disqualify you from following Jesus. Whatever you've done, wherever you are from, whatever or whoever you are entangled with at the moment, however much of a mess you have made of your life to this point, Jesus wants you to follow him. And if you will turn from sin to him, he will not cast you out. Your background does not disqualify you from following Jesus. Anyone here ever sung the song, Amazing Grace? Certainly. Many of us have sung it in this room. Did you know that Amazing Grace was written by a man named John Newton, who lived in the 1700s? Do you know what John Newton did before he became a Christian? He worked in the transatlantic slave trade. Right, John Newton helped sell kidnapped African people as property. Right? John Newton was a wicked man doing wicked things. But then Jesus said to John Newton, come follow me. He extended his amazing grace to John Newton. And John Newton followed Jesus. He's in heaven today, happier than we are. Have any of you ever heard of Rosaria Butterfield? Anyone? Rosaria Butterfield? Rosaria Butterfield is a prominent Christian author and speaker. She is the wife of a pastor in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Two of her books are in our library. They're great. Do you know what Rosaria Butterfield did before she became a Christian? She was a scholar at Syracuse University who studied queer theory and was living openly as a lesbian. But through the courageous outreach and hospitality of a local minister, Jesus called Rosaria Butterfield, and she followed him. And now she writes really good Christian books. Anyone here ever heard of the Apostle Paul? If you were here for the assurance of pardon, you've heard of the Apostle Paul. He wrote our assurance of pardon in addition to much else of our Bibles. Did you know what the Apostle Paul did before he knew Jesus? He hated and jailed and killed Christians. But like Eric read for us earlier in the service, Paul came to find out that Christ Jesus 
came into the world to save sinners, sinners like Paul. Jesus doesn't just call nice, domesticated, middle-class people from socially acceptable, relatively moral backgrounds who are sinners too, by the way. Jesus calls all kinds of people to come and follow him. People like you and me, people like Levi, people like John Newton, people like Rosaria Butterfield, people like Paul. So church, is this on our radar? Is it on our radar to extend the call of Jesus to repent and believe to all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds? Do we pray and look for opportunities to speak about Jesus with people whose backgrounds might be very different from ours? May our God give us wisdom and courage and love to do so. Mark shows us in this passage not only Levi's background, but second, also Levi's outreach. Levi's outreach. Look there at verse 15. It says, and as he reclined at table in his house, I think that is as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So after Levi leaves his tax booth, leaves his old life to follow Jesus, what does Levi do? He throws Jesus a party. Luke puts it this way. He says, and Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And who else is there? Well, a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners, presumably some of Levi's friends and associates. Levi follows Jesus. And then he throws a giant feast for Jesus and presumably a bunch of his tax collector and sinner friends, probably his own associates. Brothers and sisters, what a model for us that we would be eager to connect those in our lives with Jesus, that we should be eager for their lives to be changed by the same grace that's changed ours. So saints, is this also on our radar Right? Not just to extend the gospel call to people very different from us, but also to extend it to people very much like us, people from the demographic that we're from, whatever demographic that might be. Right? Is there a group that you come from that you have special access to, maybe that you're still a member of somehow, that gives you unique opportunities to speak to others about Jesus, to connect people in your life with the Savior? What we see in Levi is someone from an unlikely background who follows Jesus and extends the grace that he has received to others. May God grant us grace to imitate. The second group of characters that Mark introduces us to in this passage are the scribes of the Pharisees. There in verse 16. We've already met some scribes in Mark's gospel, but this is the first mention of the Pharisees. These scribes in particular were from a group called the Pharisees. So who are the Pharisees? It might be helpful to think about Pharisees as a kind of denomination within Judaism in Jesus' day. So in Jesus' day, Jewish people did not all agree about the best way to practice their religion or to interpret uh, the Old Testament. There were various groups within Judaism. So for example, you had the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees were the rich, influential, liberal branch of Judaism back then. So the Sadducees denied that there was a resurrection, which is why they were so sad, you see. It had to be done. It had to be done. They didn't believe in angels, right? It seems that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, only the laws of Moses. In addition to the Sadducees, there were also the Essenes. So the Essenes were a tight and very serious uh, group who formed their own communities and kind of existed on the fringes of Jewish society. Uh, At least one Essene community that we know about was out in the desert, so they sort of withdrew from common life. The Essenes had their own initiation rituals. They considered themselves exclusively sort of the righteous remnant of God. The Essenes had really weird and unique ways of interpreting the Bible. They thought that they had sort of special insights into it. So you've got the Sadducees, you've got the Essenes. You've also got the Pharisees. This is what commentators John Donahue and Daniel Harrington write about the Pharisees. Listen to how much about this is right. They say the Pharisees were a movement of strictly observant and influential Jews that began in the second century BC. They were a lay movement, so as opposed to the Sadducees who were mainly priests or largely priests, they were a lay movement which stressed the sovereignty of God. Sounds good. In every area of life. They were popular with the people at large and were noted for their strict observance and creative interpretation of the law. Strict observance of God's word. That sounds good. They valued oral tradition as well as the written law, and they believed in divine providence. That's good. And life after death. Again, that's good and right. If you're familiar with much of the Bible, there can be a temptation anytime you hear the word Pharisee to think nasty bad guy right, because of what they get wrong. But the wrongness of the Pharisees should actually shock us because of how much the Pharisees got right. Someone put it to me this way this week. He said that his former pastor used to say, listen, if you were alive back then and you took the Bible seriously, you would have gone to the Pharisees' church. And that's not meant as an insult, but to reveal how much the Pharisees got right on paper, how much of their official doctrine was good. By the way, the Pharisees did not teach that you had to be perfect to go to heaven. Their conception of God's grace was, we would say, deficient, but they talked about the need for God's grace. But when God's grace and God's lordship met the Pharisees, in the person of Jesus Christ, notwithstanding their doctrine, they found that they were on a very different page than he was. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? From the tone of the Pharisees' interaction, I don't think that they're asking an honest question. This seems more like a disgruntled objection than an inquiry. They're clearly disapproving of what Jesus is doing. So three things to observe about the Pharisees. Three things in this passage we see about the Pharisees. The first is that they've missed the point of God's law. They've missed the point of God's law. So on the one hand, the Pharisees were the group 
in Jewish society who took God's law really, really seriously. But on the other hand, they misunderstood what it was intended to do. So remember, when we looked at the cleansing of the leper a few weeks ago, we spoke about how the ritual purity laws in the Old Testament, they were meant as a graphic picture of the need that we have to be cleansed from sin. And yes, God absolutely meant for his people to follow the Old Testament cleansing laws. They were not free to say, oh, well, these laws are just a picture, so we don't need to obey them. But can you see the Pharisees, they've turned God's concern for ritual purity into a way to avoid loving their neighbor and to rank themselves higher than those who don't take God's law as seriously in the same way. They've used God's concern for ritual purity to consider themselves holier than their neighbor so that they don't have to get down and love them. They've missed the point of God's law. And that's related to the second thing we see about the Pharisees. And that is that they're focused on man-made rules. They're focused on man-made rules. So Jesus is not breaking any of God's laws in the Old Testament by eating with tax collectors and sinners. But the the Pharisees had this idea that that was inappropriate. Well, that was rooted not in God's law, but in man's tradition. We're not certain exactly what the Pharisees' objection was. They don't spell it out for us. But the idea seems to be that, well, God has laws about eating, and God has laws about cleanliness. And the general principle is that you don't want to get near uncleanliness. And so, I should be really careful not to eat with anyone who takes the law less serious than me, lest their uncleanness kind of get on me. The Pharisees were tied up in additions that they made to God's rules. That was the focus of their piety. And brothers and sisters, the the temptation to do this has not left us. This is still very much alive in the human heart. We are often tempted to add to God's law as a means of feeling better about ourselves than others. Because if we compare ourselves to God's law, we certainly don't come out clean. But if we sort of build rules around God's law and then compare ourselves and others to those rules, maybe we can come out on top. God's law says, blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. Clear priority of God. Treasure the scriptures. There can be a temptation to add. So here is exactly the kind of daily quiet time you need to have in order to be right with God. Is it good? Is it wonderful to read God's word every single day? Yes. Is God impressed when we add rules? No, he's not. God's law says, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Clear command from God. Sometimes we're tempted to add. So if if you want to be really spiritual, here's exactly how you need to do that with your children. Is God impressed? When we add to his law in that way? No, no. Right? God's law says modesty is important. God's word says that. Says it in 1 Peter, says it in 1 Timothy. If we add, well, here's the, the definitive list of exactly what everyone can and can't wear. Right? We're adding to God's law. Right? God says abuse and misuse of this substance is a terrible and destructive sin. And so we add, well, anyone, anywhere who uses this substance is is certainly sinning, right? Adding to God's law. 
Right? The consistent witness of the Gospels is that Jesus isn't impressed when our spirituality becomes focused on human rules that we add to God's law. And Jesus is especially not impressed when we judge other people against the laws that we create. So does this mean that we're wrong to approach anyone ever about any behavior that might be unwise or clearly sinful? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course, we can confront one another about clear sin. We can confront one another about our behavior not being wise. That is upholding God's law. Does this mean that we are wrong to judge other people internally or behind their backs or even to their face on the basis of rules that we made up? Yes, it does mean that. The Pharisees are stuck on man-made rules, and it puts them on the other side of the fence from Jesus. So the third thing we see about the Pharisees is that they are selfish rather than compassionate. They're selfish rather than compassionate. Matthew points this out very explicitly elsewhere in his gospel. So the Pharisees are very concerned about themselves and their rules. Their focus is very much inward. They don't appear to give a hoot about the fact that a bunch of tax collectors and sinners have turned to Jesus and are now following him. Loving my neighbor has been eclipsed by a focus on me, even though it's a religious focus. So unlike Jesus, the Pharisees are not on a mission of mercy. Their religion is all about them. They seem blind to the needs of others around them, right in front of them. Brothers and sisters, could it be that the Gospels devote so much attention to the errors of the Pharisees because the Lord knows that the human heart has not changed? The Lord knows that the human heart is still susceptible to these errors. Could it be that the Lord knows that when sinful humans like us practice religion, which we do, pure and undefiled religion, the book of James speaks about, could it be that the Lord knows that when we practice religion, our hearts are in danger of slipping into a religion of correct doctrine that misses the point, majors on man-made rules, and focuses on ourselves? The Pharisees serve as a sobering warning in this passage, and we'll see them again as we progress through Mark's gospel, Lord willing. The third and final character in our passage this morning, and that is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Did you notice how Jesus addresses the Pharisees' objection? Jesus doesn't walk back his decision. Jesus doesn't try to clear up some sort of misunderstanding. I'm I'm so sorry, you thought I was eating with these people, but let me explain. Jesus doesn't even wrangle with the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, about the interpretation of the law. He'll do that later. Jesus takes the opportunity to clarify the purpose of his coming. This passage gives us, I think, three images of the Lord Jesus Three complementary identities of Jesus that clarify why he came. So the first image that this passage gives us of Jesus is Jesus as a doctor. Jesus as a doctor. You see that there in the first half of verse 17. It says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick 
Jesus, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Well, it's because those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick. Jesus is comparing his mission to the mission of a doctor, of a physician. The goal of a doctor is to treat and heal and help people who have something wrong with them. If you are perfectly healthy, you don't need a doctor. Jesus is saying, the reason I came, the reason I'm on earth, is to treat and help and heal and cure people who are messed up, people who have things wrong with them. That's why I'm eating with sinners. This is not the first time in Mark's gospel we've seen that physical brokenness is used as a picture for the spiritual brokenness of sin that afflicts all of us. The reason that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners is because that's the kind of sick people he came to heal. And friends, doesn't this give us a clue about the kind of person who will come to Jesus? In the the physical realm, unless I am really convinced that there is something really, really wrong with me, I will not go to a doctor. And even then, I usually just try to write it out. Friend, listen, it's the same in the spiritual realm. You will not come to Jesus unless you know that you are very, very sick. That's true if you're not a Christian. What it means to become a Christian is to acknowledge that you are broken that you are messed up, that you have sinned against a holy God, that your heart is disposed toward him in sin and hostility and rebellion, and you need his forgiveness. You need his help to change. You are sin sick and need a doctor. That's what it is to become a Christian, to trust Jesus as your soul's doctor. And saints, there's something true about this in our lives as Christians as well. Haven't you noticed that your increasing awareness of your indwelling sin, even as a believer, drives you to Jesus for more help and more mercy? There's something to the quote that the church is meant to be not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Church is not the place that you come to be entertained with high ideas, to stretch your mind. The church is the place that you come to receive grace and mercy because you have a deep sin problem. The church is the place that you come to doctor Jesus for help and healing. So friend, whatever your sin sickness looks like, know this. Jesus Christ is the great physician of souls. He is full of mercy and power to forgive you, to bear with you, and to transform you. The point is not that you would remain sick, but that Jesus would help and heal you. This this passage presents Jesus as a doctor. The second image for Jesus that we get in this passage is Jesus as preacher, And that's not so much an image as it is a reality that the passage mentions. What does Jesus say right at the end of verse 17? Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Jesus came to call sinners. So understand, Jesus is full of compassion and grace. He didn't just come to give sinners a hug and tell them that everything's okay. Jesus came to call sinners. Luke's gospel clarifies that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, to turn from disobedience to God toward faith, toward trusting him, toward walking in obedience. Right? So the doctor's medicine, it involves turning from the poison of sin. But again, what's so amazing is that Jesus is on a mission to call sinners. Right? Jesus did not come to find decent and deserving people and tell them, hey guys, good job. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Keep it up and you'll be sure to earn a spot. That's not Jesus' message. Jesus came to find people who had opposed the king of heaven, who had rebelled against them, which is all of us. And to tell them, listen, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but the good news is that this king offers mercy to everyone who turns to him, everyone who trusts in him. If you will repent and believe, this king will save you. He's the king who is a doctor. This passage presents Jesus as doctor, and his medicine is connected to his call, his work as a preacher to call people to repentance. Third image we get for Jesus in this passage, I think most wonderfully. This passage presents Jesus as a dinner guest. You remember where this is happening, right? It takes place at a dinner party where Jesus is sharing a meal with Levi and his outcast friends. So it could be that the Pharisees' objection to this was that in that culture, as to, into ours to some degree, sharing a meal with someone, especially in their home, was a way of identifying with them. It was a sign of friendship with them. Listen to this. We are tempted to think that the reason that Jesus was a friend of sinners was so that he could preach to them. And there's some truth to that. But the deeper truth is that the reason that Jesus preaches to sinners was so that they might become his friends. Do you understand the difference? We are tempted to think that the reason that Jesus was a friend of sinners was to use a little bit of friendship to get the door open and then preach at them. And there's something to that. But that's not the ultimate goal of Jesus. The ultimate goal of Jesus is to preach to sinners so that they might repent and become his friends, so that they might share table fellowship with him, so that ultimately they might come to his dinner party in the new heavens and the new earth. This Bible passage is part of a rich biblical theme that we don't have time to unearth right now, that God doesn't just want to save his people, as important as that is. God wants to share a fellowship meal with his people. God wants his people to be his dinner guests, sinners though we are. Listen, we're not taking communion this morning. We do that the first Sunday of every month, God permitting, but let me close in speaking about another meal that Jesus shared with his people. On the night before he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, as he dined with his disciples, took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And you know what Jesus said about that bread as he shared it with his disciples? 
He said, this is my body, which is given for you. After supper, Jesus also took a cup. And you know what he said about that cup? Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, saints, through communion, through the Lord's Supper, Jesus has built into the life of his people a reminder that he wants to share table fellowship with us. It's also a reminder that the means by which sick sinners are healed, the means by which outcasts are brought to the table is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross when once for all he died to take our sin sickness on himself, when he bore the penalty, the wrath of God against sin that we had deserved so that we might be healed. As we'll sing in a moment, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. Praise God for Jesus, the friend of sinners. Saints, let's pray.